Take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 1, beginning verse 14 this morning. John chapter 1, beginning verse 14. The Apostle John in these first verses, this that we're finishing up this morning, this thing that is called the prologue to his gospel, sort of a an introductory essay, if you will, before he gets into the the whole life of Christ and ministry of Christ. This, this prologue presents us with some of the great mysteries of Christianity. They really, it, it really does. You know, when, when John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, he was there in the beginning with God. I mean, that is a great mystery of the Christian faith. No other, no other religion, no other faith group makes any kind of claim like that, that our founder was with God and was God at the very beginning of all time, all, all history, all eternity. I mean, that's a pretty profound statement. It's hard to understand that in, in some respects. That gets into the issue of the Trinity, which we'll talk about later, but it, it gets into the whole issue of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three, three persons, one God. There is no division in essence, no division in nature. They are one God manifest in three persons. I mean, that, that, that is a mystery that we will never fully understand this side of heaven, and quite honestly, I'm not sure we'll understand it that side of heaven. To be honest, it's a mystery of the faith. It's a mystery that we embrace. It's a mystery that we believe to be true because God's word has revealed it to be true. And, and he goes on and just talks about Christ coming to the world and being the light and, and the world, even those who were his own, rejected him and neglected him. They, they did not receive him. And then he comes to verse 14. And he talks about in verse 14 the incarnation in the most clear, emphatic way that he possibly can, referring back not just to the creation as he did in the first part of this chapter, but, uh, but referring back even and, and making allusion to the exodus out of Egypt of the children of Israel. And, and, and he makes it so clear, and yet in, in its clarity and in its fullness, it remains a mystery because we just can't fully grasp it of our own strength. Dr. S. Lewis Johnson tells the story about a, a young student who he met years ago in Dallas, Texas, who had, uh, uh, who had been in a, the university and had studied, and he was a science major, and he had come pretty much to adopt the, and accept the general views of, of Darwin and Huxley and Spencer and the others of that day, and regarded himself somewhat of a spiritual agnostic, not fully an atheist, but an agnostic. And he said, I just don't know. I can't believe that you can know. I, I don't believe that you can even know if there is a God or not. So I'm a spiritual agnostic. And a friend of his challenged him one day, well, why don't you study? Why don't you study the strongest presentation of Christian truth that you can find and, and, and then just either refute it or believe it, whichever would come about. And, and so this young man did, and he under some advice from Dr. Johnson, he was told, well, why don't you study the Gospel of John, the very book that we are studying now. He read it through from beginning to end uh, several times. And when he was through, this young man, Mr. White said, he said, the one of whom this book tells us is either the Savior of the world or he ought to be. That that's the kind of person, that he's either the savior of the world or he really and truly ought to be. And this young man came to, 
to heed what the truth of the scripture was, to heed what the truth of the gospel John was, of John was, and the call of our Lord through that. And, and he, his favorite verse, he said after that, became, if any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And this young man did exactly that, and he was converted and, and went out, studied under Dr. S. Lewis Johnson at Dallas Theological Seminary, and became one who went out and proclaimed the gospel and the truth of Jesus Christ for the rest of his life. That's the power of John's gospel. That's the power of the gospel message. That's the power of this person about whom this book is written and about whom we are studying in these days to come. I'm always taken by S. Lewis Johnson's statement. Excuse me, S. Lewis Johnson. That's right, by C.S. Lewis's statement. I'm always taken by C.S. Lewis's statement when he said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. But if true, it is of infinite importance the one thing that Christianity can never be is moderately important if it's true it's absolutely important infinitely important if false it's a waste of our time but one thing it will never be it's either true or false it'll never be moderately important and we cannot approach it as believers as just something that is moderately important to our world John is going to tell us clearly that this is the story about God who took on flesh. This is the story about God, the creator of all time, space, and matter. The God who created everything, who took on human flesh and dwelt among us. That is something that is ultimately and totally important. If it's true. False, we can blow it off and go do our own thing, quit wasting time here on Sunday morning. That's what Paul said about the resurrection. If if Christ is not raised, we are preaching in vain. And if Christ is not raised, and that was the validation of who he was that John's talking about, if, if Christ is not raised, then we are of all men to be most pitied. Because there is no truth, no element of truth whatsoever in the gospel. But we believe that it is true. And we believe that it has been revealed. And we believe because of that, it is of intimate and ultimate and complete infinite importance that we not only study it, but that we absorb it, that we apply it, that we, we understand it in such a way that it, it impacts our own living and that we share it with others. Listen to John's words in John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18 as he continues to talk about the Word being made flesh. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him, that is John the Baptist again, testified about him and cried out saying, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me is of higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. We studied that Wednesday night the invisibility of God, the spiritual nature of God. He is invisible. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, 
who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. John starts out with those simple words, the, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. As those who are reading this gospel for the first time and maybe hearing the apostles preaching during that time when he would use that statement, their mind immediately went back to the exodus from, from Egypt. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt is literally uh, the word tabernacled, pitched his tent. The word became flesh and came to earth and pitched his tent or dwelt among us, lived among us, demonstrated his grace, his truth, his glory in our presence. That is such an important thing to begin to realize. It's talking about the two, the, the union, if you will, of the two natures of Christ in one person. And it, it, that doubtlessly is one of the greatest mysteries of the Christian faith that there is. How one man, Jesus, is God and man simultaneously. Not half God, not half man. Not God on Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, and Thursday, and Friday, on the, uh, and, and the other days, he's man. No, he is God-man seven days a week, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, for 33 some about years that he lived on the, on the earth. This man, Jesus, is the God-man. 100% God, 100% man. That is a mystery. How does the God part of Jesus not just totally swallow up the man part? Or how does the man part of Jesus not somehow shove and push the God part just a little bit into some kind of submission? Well, that would be impossible, but you, you get my point. The, the point is, it, neither nature ever caused the other to cease to be. He was always God, always man, and this God-man came and dwelt among us on this earth. Is that not a mystery? Is that not something that, that we cannot come to and say, well, I can dissect that biolog biologically. I can, I can show you that physically. I can show you that uh, exactly how that is. It, it can't be done. But that's what God did. He came, took on flesh. I think it's even imp important to notice that, that John didn't say, and the Word became a man. The Word became a man. We th when we think of a man, we think of the, the, the gender of a person, and, and, and indeed he was a man in gender, but, but that's not the emphasis of Jesus. The emphasis is flesh. The Word became flesh. Not just a man, but he became that which represents the totality of the entire human race. The Word became flesh supersedes gender. It goes beyond that. It talks about something that is a part of every single one of us. We are all flesh. Flesh and blood, the very essence of our being is flesh. And, and John says, and that's what God did. He took on flesh. He, he took on flesh and he dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. He lived among us. And, and we saw his glory. I, I love how John puts that. We, we, we saw his glory. He was God-man. He was 100% man. He was, he, was, he was totally a man. He was not trying to hide that or veil that. He was a man in every way like us except one. What is that? Without sin. He felt pain. He felt sadness. He felt the emotions. He, he was a man in every way as we are 
except that one way that he was without sin. And yet John says, as we saw this man Jesus, as we, we looked upon him and lived around him and saw his actions and his deeds and his teachings, the one thing we noticed was we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father. I like the way John puts it in his little epistle of 1 John uh, when, when he made these statements about him. He said, you know, just beginning that book, his little prologue to his first epistle, he says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, and what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested to us, shown to us, demonstrated to us. And, and what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. John says in his first little epistle there that our joy is contingent upon understanding what those disciples saw and heard and touched and handled on a day-by-day -day relationship with Jesus who was God manifested, who, who showed them, manifested to them who God is. It's deep stuff. But it's deep stuff we have to understand, we have to see, and we have to grasp. We, we must never forget at any time in looking at this passage that the, our Lord Jesus Christ was God and man at the same time. The divine and the human natures in him were never confounded. One nature never did swallow up the other. He remained that for his entire life on earth and even into eternity. He is forever God in the flesh manifested for us to see. And we have to understand that. Then John, the writer, says John testified about him. He cried out saying, this is him. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me is of higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Now, that might sound a little strange to our ears. We live in a, a world that is somewhat egalitarian in its approach to age anyway. And we can easily have someone who is of a higher rank than us that is younger than us, that 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 lived it was born before us that's that's no big issue uh, it doesn't have to be that the older is always in charge of the younger but in John's day it was very very clear that the elder ruled over the younger in just the normal course of things whoever was the older they were in charge generally in the armies even there were there, the the officers were never promoted beyond their years so that they were over people that were younger than they were. They, they always had as their subordinates those who were younger than them. And yet here comes Jesus and John along, and John says, listen, I've been telling you this. The one that's coming after me, the one that I'm pointing to, the one that I'm saying, there he is. That's the one I've been talking about. He is of a higher rank than me. He is greater than me. He is more important than me because he existed before me. I want you to know, John says, the natural order of rank is in place here in our day. And they would look at that and say, well, John, are you out of your mind? Are you out of your mind? 
you're six months older than Jesus. You are the elder of the two. How can you say he is of a higher rank? How can you say he is more important than you are or more authoritative than you are? And John says, it's because he existed before me. Now, to the natural mind, that plays all sorts of games, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, John was born here. Jesus was born here. John is older. Jesus is here. And if you take just the manger, if you take just the time when the, the eternal God took on flesh, then you've got to say, John's older than Jesus. But in the scheme of things eternally and in the schemes of things spiritually, Jesus preceded John. He was the preexistent, pre-incarnate expression of Almighty God. And that must never be forgotten. Then John says, For I want you to see that all his fullness we have received. We've received grace upon grace. And, and the idea there is it's just it's magnified, it's multiplied, it's, it's greater than anything we could have ever imagined. The grace that we've received from Jesus Christ, just his presence is, is what he has done on the cross and everything, just shows the grace of God in a magnificent way. He doesn't just say, and from him we've received grace. We've received grace upon grace, and he could have gone on with several more, grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. But he said, suffice it to say, this grace of Jesus Christ, this grace that we've seen when we beheld his glory, is, a, is an amplified, magnified, glorious grace. And then he makes one thing perfectly clear. And we'll come back to this in our, in our conclusion. But for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. The law was given through Moses. You remember that? It was on Mount Sinai. When the thunder and the lightning and the storms and the rumbles and everything carried around up there and the people were down at the foot of the mountain waiting on Moses to come back. When they decided they would build something that represented God, so they built a golden calf and said, this will be our Yahweh, this will be our God, and we will... We will have something tangible to worship. And, and finally Moses came down with the, with the tablets of, of the law. And he was so incensed at them dancing and, and partying around the golden calf and worshiping it that he threw down the tablets and broke the tablets of the law of God. Had to go back up and get them again. Had to go back up and, and, and receive them again from the Lord and make it. And he came back and he said, this is the law of God. Hear it. We still have that law. Talk about the significance of it in a minute. But through Jesus, we realize something far greater. Through Jesus, we realize something far more significant. Through Jesus, we realized grace and truth. The grace of God, the truth of God. Now, does that mean that in the Old Testament there was no grace? No, not at all. But in the Old Testament, grace was kind of a, a nebulous thing, and, and people struggled with understanding the grace of God. They, they, they saw God as the lawgiver. They saw God as the legalist. They saw God as the one who said, thou shalt not, and that's all there is to it. Don't do this. The grace of God was being manifested in the Old Testament, but it was just not 
clearly realized. And what about truth? We realize truth in Jesus. I mean, there's no truth in the Old Testament. Does that mean that the, the law is not truth if, 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 if Jesus brings us grace and truth and we have the revelation of God in the law in the Old Testament? Does that mean the Old Testament is, is somewhat false or, or at least lacking in truth? Not at all. The law gives us the, the great manifestation of the character of God. I mean, you, you don't understand the character of God, God if you don't understand the law. You don't understand who He is and what He demands and what He's like unless you understand the law. There's a lot of truth in the law. But the ultimate truth, the truth that is the way, the truth, and the life was only realized when Jesus came. It's only realized when he took on flesh and dwelt among us. And, and then John says, as we have the law through Moses and we have grace and truth through Christ, I, I want you to know that nobody's ever seen God, not at any time, not any place, not anywhere. We talked about that Wednesday night in the Theophanies and we mentioned it last Sunday. And by the way, I do know that Daniel was in the lion's den and, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was in the fiery furnace. Not the other way around, as was in the sermon last week. Sometimes you get up here and you get to going and your mouth goes faster than your brain. Uh, and my brain is not as young as it used to be. So anyway, but I do know that's the truth. But, but the thing I'm saying, we talked about theonomies last week where there's manifestations of God and the angel of the Lord and, and in the fiery furnace and in the lion's den, you see the presence of, of the Lord. And, and, and they would say, we've seen God. You, you have in the temple with, with Isaiah, Isaiah 6, when he says, I entered the temple and I saw the Lord high, exalted and lifted up. But there was a vision there of God. There was, a, there was a manifestation of God in some way. But he did not see God because God is invisible. No one's seen God at any time. The only begotten of God who is in the bosom of the Father, he's explained. I, I love the way John says that. It's just, it's beautiful. The only begotten God, that is Jesus who is in the bosom of the Father. There, there's an expression there of intimacy. There's an expression there of closeness. There's an expression there of a father-son relationship that is the most intimate, most beautiful of any you could ever imagine. The only begotten God is in the bosom, who, who is in the bosom of the Father. The one who's been with him for all of eternity the one who knows God because he is God, the one who, who, who can express God because he understands God like nobody ever, no theologian ever has, no priest ever has, no, no rabbi ever has. He really understands, his, he, he, he understands the Father intimately. That one is Jesus who has come in the flesh, the Word of God, and he has explained him. Wow. What an expression of gospel truth. What an expression of theological reality that, that, that this became, this one Jesus who took on flesh is able to explain to us God in, its, in his completeness. I want you to see three simple things out of this text and then we're done. Call this conclusion. 
Three very simple things. We've touched on them, but I want to go back and reiterate them. First of all, in this passage, we are taught clearly that it is Christ alone who supplies all the spiritual needs of all believers. The title of the sermon was The Word in History and Among Believers. Well, in history he came and he took on flesh and he dwelt among us and he, he, we beheld his glory, John said. That's him in history. But him in, in believers, in our lives today, that one who took on flesh alone supplies all the spiritual needs of believers, of all believers, all Christians, in two ways, through grace and through truth. Grace that gives the believer access to the Father. Not on merit. We sang that this morning. Uh, rock of ages, cleft for me. Nothing, no price in my hand do I bring simply to your cross. I cling. The grace of God gives us the ability and the knowledge and the foresight to be able to cling to the cross of Christ. That's, that, that's the grace of God. And it meets our most basic spiritual need, our need for new life, our need for conversion, our need for being reborn by the Spirit and by the truth of Christ. It's grace. It's all of grace. Spurgeon wrote a book with that title. It's, it's all of grace. It's not of merit. It's not of works. It's not of deeds. It's not of what I can do. It's all of grace. We need to spend more time in our Christian life talking about what Christ has done than we do about what we have done. Because what we have done is of no significance unless we understand what he has done and we're relying on what he has done that's grace and truth understanding the Christian life once we have entered into it by grace it's his truth that meets the spiritual needs of every believer to know how we are to live on the basis of what he has taught us I mean we don't figure that out ourselves it's a, it's a part of grace and it's an application of truth there are far too many Christians today who are living as though they are Mosesites rather than Christians. There are far too many professing believers today who are living in or trying to live in light of the law rather than in light of grace and truth. They're, they're, you know, legalism is a is a cancer among the church in the 21st century. Legalism is, is, a, is a great part of the Bible belt. It's, you know, you ask somebody, are you a Christian? They say, yes, I'm a Christian. Well, how do you know you're a Christian? Well, I know I'm a Christian because I don't do this, this, and this. Really? Well, I know Christians who do this, this, and this, and they really are believers. So, so what are you basing your faith on? Is it the grace of God in Jesus Christ, or is it what I can earn? How, how I can favor with God. I've been rereading an old book. I quoted out of it last week that I say old, 1991. I guess that's a really old book. Um, but an older book that I read in 1991, and I just picked it up and started reading it again a few weeks ago. I'm reading it slowly, just kind of thinking about it, by Jerry Bridges entitled Transforming Grace. As a matter of fact, there's a couple of copies in the book nook out there. I, I would encourage anybody to read it, Transforming Grace. And he gives a little test in that book. He says, let me ask you this. Let's say that tomorrow morning, 
you get up and you're ready to go to work and, and you get up and you, you get up an hour early and you, have your, you get your cup of coffee and you get your Bible and you get your notebook and, and you get your daily Bible and you start reading your passage for the daily Bible and you're jotting down notes and you're thinking about it and you're praying and you, you just really spend an hour or more just glorying in the presence of Christ. I mean, it's just a great quiet time. And you get to work and things are pretty much going the way they ought to go during the day and everything goes well. And, and, you, you come, and, and at lunch you spend a little time praying and you fellowship with the Lord and you say, boy, this is tremendous. And so at the end of the day, a co-worker that you've been praying for for, a time, for some time comes up to you and says, listen, I really want to ask you some questions about spiritual matters. And you share the gospel with them. Pretty good day, huh? Well, let's take this just a little differently. Let's say Tuesday you wake up, the alarm clock doesn't go off, the coffee maker doesn't make coffee uh, you know, automatically like it's supposed to, you get up about five minutes before you've got to be out of the house, you run through the shower, you don't have time to pray, you don't have time for Bible study, you don't have time to do anything. You just, you just run out the door, you get in your car, you go to work, everything's kind of topsy-turvy all day long and you you work as much as you can and 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 then at the end of the day this another co-worker comes up to you and, and he says to you I really want to ask you some questions about Christ now Monday morning you spent time in the word you prayed you spent a lot of time more time doing it and and then on the second morning on Tuesday morning you didn't have time to do anything you didn't spend any time in the word and now you're at the end of the day and you got two co-workers both asking you a question about Christ Bridges says, which one is God going to bless the most? He says, if you answer Monday, because that's the day you spent all the time in the Word and you prayed and you did all this, if you answered Monday, then welcome to the legalist club. Because you believe only God blesses what you do. And if you don't do enough, God won't bless you enough. But if you believe that even in spite of your shortcomings, in spite of your inabilities, in spite of your oversleeping, in, in, in spite of you neglecting the Word that morning and neglecting prayer that morning, if you believe that God is just as capable of blessing when you share the gospel with that person today, then welcome to grace. Because that's what grace is all about. You know, I, I, use it, I probably overuse this, but I know I heard it again this week. I heard it twice this week. I heard it once on television, and I heard it once in a, uh, in a coffee shop. And I heard somebody say, well, you know, we just have to depend on the fact that God helps those who help themselves, just like the Bible says. They said that. They don't go to grace. I would have whipped them on the spot, I guess. But they don't go to grace. But, but I heard that. I heard on TV on a, quote, Christian show, and I heard it on uh, uh, in a coffee shop here in town and and God helps those who help themselves just like the Bible says that's legalism that's if I can do it God can help me grace is God helps those who are hopelessly helpless God helps those with grace and with truth who cannot change anything. Legalism can never meet our spiritual needs. Legalism will lead us to defeat. Legalism will lead us to frustration. Legalism will lead us to anti-joy. 
But grace and truth, and depending on the power of Christ, will lead us to joy. That's what John said in his epistle. He said, he said, I write these things. I'm writing this to you about seeing Christ, knowing Christ, touching Christ, living with Christ. I'm writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. And joy is made complete in grace, not in legalism. Pure and simple. Now Moses, Moses was important. But the second thing I want you to see beyond Christ alone supplies our needs is the vast superiority of Christ to Moses and of the gospel to the law. That's what John is showing us here, that the, the gospel is superior to the law, that, that grace is superior to works, that Christ is superior to Moses. Not that Moses wasn't important, he gave the law. But as Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, the law was just our schoolmaster, our tutor, that would push us on and direct us on to, to be able to find out the grace and the truth that exist in Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever had a tutor or been a tutor, uh, but if you've ever been a tutor of somebody, it was not your goal to just get them to know what, what, what is the basic stuff you're laying on them. Your idea of tutoring is to help them to, to pick up where they need to be and then go on further in understanding truths of whether it's math or English or whatever. You tutor them to get them through a time when they can't see the end to where they can see the end. That's what the law is for. The law basically says, look, here the, here's the law. Ten commandments. Ten biggies. Guess what? You can't do it. You ever had a tutor to tell you that? You can't do it where you are. You can't do it. You, you can't accomplish it. Here's the law. Ten things. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't commit adultery. Don't, uh, don't kill. Don't, don't do all these things. Then Jesus comes along and messes that up and says, but if you hate somebody, it's just like you've, it's like you've murdered them in your heart. If you lust after somebody, it's like you've committed adultery in your heart. If you covet, then you've stolen. If you envy, then you've, you've slandered. I mean, it just goes on and on. Jesus made it different. Because too many people in Jesus' day had come along and said, oh, I've never, never taken a life. Nor would I. I'm just too good for that. Listen, if, if legalism could get us to God, then John and Jesus and everybody else should have said, hey, guys, look at the Pharisees. Look at what they're doing. Follow the Pharisees. Why, they are following the jot and tittle of the law, and they're doing everything they can right. But Jesus went to the Pharisees and said, hey, you're a bunch of whitewashed tombs. You're beautiful on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. Because the law, legalism, cannot give life. The law can point us to the gospel. The law can point us to grace. The law can point us to truth. But it can never fulfill it in our lives. And then finally, the third thing I want you to see out of these verses, and then we'll, we'll be done, is I want you to see that it is Christ alone who has fully revealed God the Father to man. General revelation, 
The heavens are declaring the glory of the Lord. That reveals something about God and his invisible attributes. Uh, Psalm 19 says, and we know that to be true. But the only way we fully know God, the only way we can fully enter into a relationship with him, the only way we can ever fully understand him is to understand him through the one who has had this intimacy in the bosom of the Father who has been there with him from eternity past and has intimately known him and now he's come and explained him to us. It is Christ alone who has fully revealed God the Father to flesh like you and me to humankind these are mysteries true mysteries that we will encounter all through this study of this gospel but mysteries that point us to the greatest truth the ultimate truth of all the universe that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord that Jesus Christ alone can meet our physical, our spiritual needs. That Jesus Christ alone can direct our lives by his grace and for his own glory. As Lewis said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. If Jesus really isn't God incarnate, there's nothing, there's nothing important about it. If it's true, it's of infinite importance. But it can never, ever be moderately important. Remember when Zane Pratt was here a few weeks ago? Spent 22 years in Muslim countries and as a missionary and sharing the gospel. And he told us the one issue that his children were having who are college freshmen and I think sophomore in high school the two issues that his children were having about moving to the United States and, and it wasn't that uh, they didn't have enough things to do it was that they were having a real struggle with nominal Christians they were having a real struggle basically with what Lewis calls here those who think that Christianity is just moderately important. It's important in a sense of Sunday. So they were having a struggle with, with seeing Christians who, who, who didn't see the ultimate absolute importance of Christ in Christianity and of faith. They, they had lived among Muslims who had converted to Christianity and who many had been disowned by their families and lost their jobs and had threats on their lives. And yet in the face of that they said, but Christ is Lord and Christ is real and the gospel is true and I've experienced the grace of God and I know the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ and I don't care what it takes. I'll die if need be. Sadly, the American church looks at that too many American pastors look at that and I'll throw myself in that category and wonder if that's not taking it just a little too far it's really not let's pray
Father, when that young agnostic said the one of whom this book tells us is either the savior of the world or he ought to be he strikes a chord of realization even in our hearts help us O Lord to examine the person of Christ through John's eyes and Lord help us to move from a view of the gospel view of Christianity is moderately important to realize that if it's true it is of infinite importance Father I pray this morning for men and women who don't know you I pray that your Holy Spirit will work in their lives this morning Father, I pray that you will draw men and women, young people, to yourself today. That they might see your truth and see your grace. That they might behold your glory, as John says, and trust you. For I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.